0: Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek.
1: And I'm Ryan Cooper. Pleased to welcome to the show Osita Nwanevu. Hoping I'm uh, pronouncing that correctly. Let's see. Let's hear it. Did I did I butcher it?
2: You, you 90%. Not n- The only difference is the N is silent. It's Nwanevu. But you, you're much closer than many people get.
1: I not, yeah. I did live in South Africa for two years, so so I oh, okay. I kind of got a little bit of familiarity familiarity with the that the type of pronunciation at least. So yeah, you know, ninety percent is as good as I'm ever going to get, uh, realistically. That's,
2: that's great.
1: Whether it's uh yeah whether whether it's uh, anglophone types of of uh words or not, but anyway, uh, Osita is a, a staff writer at the New Republic, formerly the New Yorker. And, uh, yeah, we wanted to have you on to, you know, just discuss some sort of general politics stuff and uh, the country sort of circling the political toilet. Um, so thanks for coming on.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, and
1: to, to sort of kick us off here, I thought it would be, um, you know, you, you have this article in TNR, you know, like the, the, the American left needs to hit the streets like now. Uh, that that sort of taking stock of where we're at, and so uh, just to, to to get us going here, could you sort of uh, run through the argument there about why that is necessary?
2: Sure. So we don't know for certain whether the Democrats um, have been shut out of the Senate. There's going to be a runoff in January in Georgia if they pick up those two Senate seats miraculously then they'll control the chamber. Um, That doesn't seem like it's very likely to happen, though. People should donate, phone bank, whatever you want to do to to help with those races. But it's looking like Mitch McConnell is coming back at Senate. Majority leader Republicans are going to keep controlling the chamber. Um, And so everything that certainly I and many other progressive writers had hoped for coming out of a Democratic Congress and a Democratic presidency, um, whether that's substantive legislation like a climate bill, some kind of health care bill, or structural reforms that would have been necessary to um, retake the Supreme Court and, um, you know, add new states and all that kind of stuff and and, and bolster American democracy. None of that really seems like it's going to happen. (laughs) Um, And so we're in this dark moment where I think the left has to really think about alternative ways of, Getting its way. Um, I wrote at the beginning of the year a piece in sort of package about the last decade um, on how the 2010s were really. Uh, people don't really think of them that this way, but they're they're really a, a remarkable decade for mass protests, starting with you know Occupy Wall Street, going into the Fight for Fifteen. We saw the protests in Ferguson. Um We saw the demonstrations against the Keystone XL Dakota Access Pipelines. Um, in the, just the past uh, couple of years, actually, we've seen a lot of labor actions, teacher strikes that actually got uh, concessions and, and raised pay in places like West Virginia. Um, there are all kinds of successful movements I think we can look at over the past decade or so that should illustrates was that good old fashioned direct action, getting out into the streets, mass organizing can actually get the goods. Um, that might not be big policy swings at the federal level, but certainly at the state level and the local level, you can do a lot if you just get people together and, and organize um, in this way. And so to me, that, that seems like what we should be turning to if, if it looks like we're not actually going to get very much out of Um, a Biden administration, formally speaking, although another function of direct action can be pushing the White House to do positive things uh, through executive action. Uh, The courts are going to make that dicey, but what the hell, you might as well try, right? Um, So the piece is just basically arguing that this is a time to sort of think of ourselves as a movement. Um, and, And what that means to me is Thinking about each particular issue, what are the the specific veto points, what are the specific institutions, specific actors that we can uh, try to pressure into doing the right thing or moving in the right direction, you know, not just expecting everything to, to come down from the top um, this is something I think There's one of the strengths of the Bernie Sanders campaign, right? The whole not-me-us thing. The understanding that even if we had elected Bernie Sanders and even the Democrats had taken Congress, you would still need a movement behind him to really galvanize the public, actually push things through, ensure that pivotal senators were being pushed on certain things, right? Yeah. Um, I think that understanding has to carry over now. Even though the situation looks bleak, I think that there's still room for action. There's still room to... to get things done as a, a popular movement.
0: That's the flip side, isn't it? Of, um, the hero worship is, 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 if it's indeed not me, us, if it's indeed not any particular candidate that comes to office that will save us, then we should be less less uh, sanguine, less worried when, say, the GOP takes the Senate, uh, because it was always going to be us that that was required to, to push for the change and to make it happen and to organize. Um, and I was struck by in your piece by a few things, the, the point that you reiterated there about not just pushing Biden left, but finding the pressure points, finding at the state, uh, local, and federal level, all the, the people... The issues that, that we can um, strategize to take advantage of, um, but also the timing. You said the next two to four months, you know, do it now. Get ready now to to act and get in the streets. So, so maybe you could talk a bit about uh, that that urgency uh, as well as the strategy.
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, I think in the wake of the Democratic primary, I think you saw a lot of very good writing about where the left should go electorally from here, um, writing that took, you know, the loss seriously, the Sanders campaign, writing that looked very deeply at trends within the Democratic electorate and and what we might expect to happen over the next three, four, five, however many years, right? Um, And at at the end of some of these pieces, you would say, well, you know, things are bleak now, but given current trends uh, we can expect that by 2024 or 2028 or 2032 we might be in a good position to actually take over the democratic party you know um, and maybe that's true right maybe maybe all of that works out demographically speaking i think there are reasons to be skeptical i i you know all that's complicated um, the thing that really keeps me up at night is that we have been told specifically on the issue of climate change that we have a very narrow window of time to start actually decarbonizing the United States, um, to keep ourselves on the trajectory that, um, or put ourselves really for the first time, on a serious trajectory to, to dealing with this with this issue. Um, I think that issue in particular is one that, you know, encourages me encourages me to say, look, like whatever we can do through direct action to actually bring certain sectors of the economy uh, in line where, where we ought to be on, on, on this issue. Like that, that we we don't have the time to sort of wait for an electoral solution for that problem. It's not like poverty or healthcare where, you know, obviously you want to help as many people right now as you can on, on those and other issues. Right. But then you could also always tell yourself, well, someday if we really, really work towards you know, mm-hmm. building movement here, then someday we're going to get to a place where we, we will do single payer and we're going to uh, eradicate poverty. You know, maybe they'll take a generation, whatever. You, you can tell yourself that story. That is not a story you can tell yourself about climate change, right? This, this is it. Yeah. Um, and so I think that issue, and I, I don't want to, to, to press on, on one particular thing and say it's necessarily, you know, more important than everything else, but that's, that is, I I think that people who think about political timelines without that fundamental problem in mind um, aren't really thinking with the the level of urgency that the moment kind of requires. We can tell ourselves that we're going to improve the situation electorally and build a mass movement that will prevail eventually. But there needs to be some kind of effort today to to, to deal with the climate. And, And maybe that's direct action aimed at the fossil fuel industry and trying to shut down certain things. I do not know what that actually means. I'm not, you know, I'm not an organizer. I'm not somebody who can speak with a lot of authority on some of these things. But I, I just, I just feel that that issue in particular is, is the clock. Um, and, and that's I think what I was thinking about more than anything else when I, when I talked about the urgency, but you know, generally speaking um, on other issues too, like I, I don't know that it makes sense to really wait until we have the electoral answer. Um, to start telling ourselves we can we can take action again, there are things you can do on the state level there are things you can do on the, on the local level within your own communities to really improve things um, on a variety of fronts. so if we can start doing all that now we, we we ought to yeah
1: it it strikes me that the that the climate point ties in directly with this sort of slap fight that that started to happen immediately after you know Democrats won uh the presidency with with what appears to be the biggest uh margin of victory against an incumbent since FDR in uh uh 1932 um uh, when he beat hoover in terms of like a percentage of the population and 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 uh you know you you have a lot of these moderate centrist democrats whatever you want to call them conservative perhaps is the word saying like up oh, green new deal is killing us Connor Lamb, who actually did win re-election despite spending only, you know, $4,000 in Facebook in the last month of the election saying, up oh, shale gas, we just can't talk about it. We can't talk about it because the state of the electorate is such that, uh, you know, that's an unpopular, I say that's an unpopular thing to, to, to deal with, even though I don't support it. Just other people talking about it, people in other districts uh, making this case uh, is, is too much for me. We just have to submit ourselves to the will of the whatever. And that attitude in the context of, uh, you know, an energy revolution, which is already just, it it is in the process of killing coal and is going to kill natural gas quite soon, like within a decade. And you have, you know, the Democratic leadership and a lot of these sort of blue doggish new Democrats, whatever, whatever you want to call them, saying that, uh, you know, we we can't try to anticipate this problem and sort of try to lead our electorate or politicize our electorate in a way that would uh, try to build a build a popular coalition around a Green New Deal or something else. If you have a better slogan than that, I certainly haven't heard one from from this crowd. Uh, saying that, like, look, look, uh, Western Pennsylvania, the gas, it sucks. It's given us earthquakes. Uh, the work is really dangerous and it's very erratic. The, the, you know, the whole thing depends on the swings of these commodity price movements, which are all over the place. It really has screwed us up. It's like, nope, we're not going to do any of that. We're just going to completely, you know, turn on a dime, you know, on the winds of our sort of perceived political impossibility, our learned helplessness. And uh, if those are the people in leadership and they appear to be continuing in leadership, Pelosi's just got another apparently another term as Speaker of the House, despite being 80 years old. And both of her top lieutenants are 81 and 80, respectively, uh, uh, um, Steny Hoyer and, and, and uh, Jim Clyburn, that is. Mass protest is all you got. You got to try to force them to, to take the issue seriously. And the more they complain about how it's making them harder to win elections, the more it convinces me to say, Oh, we need to keep doing this because it's the only way you're ever going to actually try, you know? Um, because otherwise I'm quite sure they would just, uh, you know, they would go till the day they die, just failing on the biggest problem we've ever faced as a species. Right.
2: Yeah, I think, I think all that's right. I mean, so the climate is interesting because, I mean, it doesn't really fit into – people have tried to make it fit, but it doesn't really fit into the other post-election diagnoses that we're seeing. Like, I I am somebody who uh, thinks defunding the police is, is a whole – perfectly defensible idea on the merits. I'm somebody who thinks Absolutely. socialism is defensible on the merits. At the same time, I recognize that there are places in the country where it's hard to run on that, and that message can be damaging. I'm willing to accept that. I don't know that we've seen a lot of evidence that that was what happened last week, but I'm willing sure. to accept that as a possibility. Climate policy is different. Like People do want to switch to a clean energy economy. If you right. take out, separate out the component parts of the Green New Deal, maybe strip out the Green New Deal as a name and just ask people do you support a green jobs program where you're giving people work building clean energy infrastructure? People love it, right? Mm-hmm. This is this basic trade off that Republicans always try to make. Do you support economic growth or, or protecting the environment? People choose, uh, if you ask them the question that way, they choose the environment. But also, I think we see evidence now that people are rejecting that false binary. On um, fracking, is an issue in particular. In Pennsylvania, even, I think there's been polling over the past couple of months showing that fracking is actually not, you know, it, it, Moving away from fracking is actually the, the majority position or popular position. These are not um, the, the massive uh, economy dominating industries that they might have been a couple of decades ago. They're, they're not as large as the service industry, you know, the coal and natural. So that's climate policy is, is not, is definitely not an area where you can say the public is rejecting where the Democratic Party seems moving on this issue. The public is rejecting AOC's position on this issue, on, on the substance. I don't think that that's true at all. So to the extent that you're hearing that from leadership, I think, you know, that's something that sometimes movement and other activists should should actively um, to challenge. But, you know, to your point about where direct action fits into, into this and, you know, the extent to which um, it seems to be the only option for moving uh, democratic electeds and leadership. I think it's very important, and I, I mentioned this in the piece that uh, I was talking about earlier that I wrote early uh, at the beginning of the year. It's very important that the Green New Deal is put on the map politically by a sit-in in Nancy Pelosi's office in 2018. That's all. T- Love it. Love nobody, it. nobody Love had it. heard of the Green New Deal before outside of environmental yeah. policy circles. It was not an active part of the climate policy discourse. I remember, I think it was Robinson Meyer at The Atlantic writing a very good piece about how, for years and years, after Wax and Markey, there had been no real consensus climate agenda within the Democratic Party, and people were rooting around for what it would be. The Green New Deal emerges, and that becomes the focal point, and even candidates that come up with their own alternative plans are making references to the Green New Deal and pointing to it as, as a sort of lodestar for where the party should go, right? Direct action did that. The Sunrise Movement physically going into a space and occupying it and communicating with the media did that, right? And so that that's something that I think has been one of the most encouraging things to see over the past um, couple of years. It's really given me a lot of hope. Uh, and I think it is evidence that that really if, if we are locked out of formal power, if we haven't figured out the electoral question yet, those are the kinds of actions and that's the kind of activity we should be turning to um, – as a model for how to actually move discourse in the right direction, maybe even move policy in the right direction. Things look bleak, but that's that's what we, that's all we've got to try. And I, I think there's reason to believe that mm-hmm. it, it, it might succeed in some places.
1: Yeah, it it, you know what you've been saying. It it kind of. I've been thinking recently of the uh, <clears throat> ongoing, I believe, protests in 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 Belarus. Um, you know where you just basically have a a long time kind of dictatorship which has uh you know um it's very very authoritarian uh very oppressive kind of police state and facing you know sort of classic mass protest uprising uh unclear who's going to win um you know uh, you, you don't want to declare victory um you know, too early or anything, but like this sort of thing has worked in the past. Many places, many countries in uh, Eastern Europe, the the color revolutions, Velvet Revolution. Um And it strikes me that America is already kind of there in many ways. I mean, the George Floyd protests were, uh you know, by, by any sort of realistic count, probably the biggest mass protests in American history. And that was you know, uh, around an issue which had been very carefully politicized, uh, over the past several years, you know, the, the issue of police brutality, uh, you know, and more broadly, like the kind of lack of quality services that is, that is endemic in, in impoverished and especially, you know, mi- minority communities in this country and saying, you know, that, like the slogan of defund the police, uh, being an indictment of a state, which which has just completely failed to cater to like half the population, and all that it has is a sort of like club wielding, you know, a uh, 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 brutal police force to beat the shit out of people who 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 uh, get out of line, and you know, um, all that you know, it's impossible for me to see that happening without the the predecessors of the the Ferguson unrest and so on. And all of the various, you know, coverage and, and activism around the, you know, I mean, literally hundreds of people who have been killed by police. And so it seems to me like, you know, even a ruthless dictatorship cannot, uh, you know, it needs some kind of legitimacy. You know, it needs buy in from a critical mass of the population to be able to survive. And if it has enough popular protest against it, 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 it won't. You know, I mean, that's that's been true of of pretty much everywhere. you know, you, you can suppress like pretty significant populations of, uh, you know, of, of, of protesters and so on if you're sufficiently ruthless. But, you know, like this to me, it seems like that's, you know, one of the big tasks of of like activists, um, writers and, 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 you know, whoever is sort of interested in politics is trying to replicate the success of the Black Lives Matter movement in terms of, you know, mobilizing a significant chunk of the population. You know, as our friend Dave Kybe says, the, the most fundamental part of politics is slack. Like most people are not paying attention. And if you can just get 10%, 10% is enough to like take national power. You got a 10 to 15% mobilized uh, population. That's it. You're done. And, uh, yeah, you know, taking that. You know, what you've what you, like that incipient mass mobilization around climate to me seems like, you know, the 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 the, the task of, of of us all to cement that in place and and make people take the science at, uh, as politically uh, as radically as they as they should. Um, it's a tough task, but it seems like we're you know, we're kind of getting there.
0: Yeah. And, and you wrote, Osita, about the consciousness that's been raised to the point where, you know, if Trump didn't step down, uh, general strikes seem to be on uh, on offer, right? Enough people seem to be aware of that threat to democracy and, and seem to understand how a general strike could work, that that is something um, that is, is, is somewhat new in the political consciousness on a, on a mass scale. And it seems like there is more opportunity for I- increasing you know the the ability to mobilize and and, and educate in, in these ways so um you know i i wonder if we think about um you know how to shift the consciousness away from seeing, and maybe this can feed into our discussion about the kind of the soft coup of Trump and the debate over that, uh, mm-hmm. seeing Trump as as singular. I mean, we have this thing in this country. We have heroes and villains, and, we, and it's like they embody everything that's wrong or good. And and so if we can shift away from the dangers of Trump um, to understanding the necessity for activism to respond to all these structural problems, um, maybe we could take advantage of, of people willing to, to go out and, and say the country from itself, right? So I don't know what your thoughts are about uh, about that.
2: Yeah, yeah. To the, to the first point you made, I, I've been really struck, and I mentioned this, as, as you said in my piece, I've been really struck by how casually how over the past few weeks, we've heard people say, well, look, if Trump actually tries to do this thing and, and stay in power, well, we'll just, we'll just get in the streets and, and we're going to force him out. And, you know, and this is not... You know, People with a lifetime of street right. activism under their belt. There's just, just ordinary people saying this, and I have no idea whether that actually would have come to fruition if this had been a more serious thing. Um, I have no idea whether a movement like that would have, would actually have, have worked, and, and you know, I, I hope it would have. But the, but the thought itself seems really significant to me because it means that people are saying to themselves, "Well, look, we cannot trust the institutions themselves to produce just outcomes here." We can't trust the judges. We can't trust political leaders. Um, if it push comes to shove, and we're actually at a point where we need to defend democracy, the only people who are going to be there to do it is is us. And that will take people getting into the streets, right? That That's an important step. I think that reflects a dramatic shift in the ordinary, I guess, the ordinary Democrats' understanding of the American political system and how fair it is and how, how much we can trust it. <laughs> um, and so I think that, that that's something that the left should take advantage of in, in the years ahead, right? Because that means that there's been a fundamental break where people are not just content to sit on the laurels and, and say, well, things are going to work themselves out. You know, I think that that's been one of the, right. the main educational... One of, the, one of the most valuable lessons we can take away from the trump era right like things will not work out like the institutions right. that we have will actually defend the demagogue and and the evil person right. and, you know right. they're not they're not yes. they're not set up to automatically remove them you know they, in fact they were set up in a way that advantaged a particular constituency that wanted him in office and has kept him there right um so I think it's really important for the left to, 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 to embrace the mantle of democracy and tell people um, that we're about empowering each and every, Person um, at the ballot box, at the workplace, push comes to shove in the streets, right? To actually create a, a country in which the popular will and and the will of the ordinary person really truly matters. Um, so I think I think all of this has been educational this past couple of weeks. I don't know if if, if you want to call it a real coup, <laughs> an attempted coup, a soft coup. I'll leave that to the political scientists. I, I think there's enough reason, whatever you want to call it, to be disturbed by what's happened. Um I, I don't think it's going to work. I don't think there was ever a real chance of it working. I don't know that Trump himself knew how serious he was about any of it. but I, I do think <laughs> what, we, what yeah. we've seen is yeah. a, 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 an American president putting out lawyers uh, whose job it was supposed to be to upend election results for absolutely no reason but the fact that the president lost. Uh, we saw last week supporters of the president going in and harassing people who were counting ballots. Some of them were armed. Um, look, if if this were happening, let's say in in a uh, a left leading South American country, I don't think the <laughs> United States State Department <laughs> would have hemmed in hard right. about what we were yeah, seeing, no. right? Like it, it, we, it's we clear would have what invaded. We, about, the, yep, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so people Absolutely. can call whatever they want to call it. I think there's there's reason enough to be disturbed by it. I think that. You know, yeah. I, I wrote another piece arguing that Republicans are doing what they're doing right now, basically for for show. Like they're indulging Trump. They know it's kind of over, but they don't want to let down the base. They don't want to tell the base that they think Trump has failed and that they rejected Trump in this critical hour, right? But they're not doing anything materially to help him. I think that this is a moment of, of true cynicism <laughs> uh, yeah, happening yeah, yeah. right now on the right. Um, but the fact that they're not serious about it doesn't make it any less despicable, right? Because they are undermining the system. They're spreading conspiracy theories. People could very easily end up getting hurt or killed as a consequence of the rhetoric that's being put out there. Uh, this is just one more uh, notch in the infinite line of notches against the Republican Party in this country. Um, so yeah. you know, I, I hope that people take that away too, that even when Trump is gone, we will have – with us still a political party that was willing to indulge him to the very end, even though it was fantasy, right? We have a political party that is still dangerous, still entirely capable of producing somebody like Trump again. And it is disproportionately advantaged in our political institutions. Um, Unfortunately, again, we don't have, (laughs) it doesn't look like we're going to have uh, enough formal power to do anything about it uh, under Biden. but, But again, this faith that people found within themselves in the power of mass action, capacity of ordinary people to come together and, and to push for change in the streets if necessary. I think we're going to have to lean on that and, and hope that the, the left can channel that into, in a productive way in the years ahead.
1: Yeah. Um, there's a couple of pretty good pieces. I think I'll link to them in the description by David Cleon and, uh, and your colleague, Alex Perine. you know, ma- making these fairly similar points to what you're making about the, the coup. um, but I, you know, I just I have a sort of like like <clears throat> cranky response to the that it's probably just you know uh, produced by people that people are you know kind of my online friends sort of scoffing at this and and uh, you know saying that it's definitely not the 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 case making it in other words very strong predictions that it's that it's definitely not going to to turn out to be a you know, a, a, an authoritarian moment. Trump's not going to seize power, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, what that sounds to me is is like Maggie Haberman's uh, uh, talking to uh, Keith Ellison in 2015 about whether or not Trump was going to win the Republican primary. And she just laughed in his face. Ellison was like, look, yeah. he's win- He's in the head in the polls. He's ahead in, the you know, all these states. He's going to win. He, like, there's a good chance of it. And we'll, we might be facing him. And, and she, you know, and this is like a criscalism mindset. And, yeah. you know, I, I think people should be a lot more cautious about making these very confident predictions about things that have literally never happened before in American history, namely a yeah, um, yeah. president refusing to concede. <laughs> right.
0: And... It's a very weird thing, Ryan. This is my hobby horse: the epistemology <laughs> of possibility. Yeah. So, so you have this this weird paradox, right? Where people are are very certain of what can't happen, like we can't have socialism, we can't have Medicare for all. I just know, uh, and they also know that like Trump can't win. And so, so like they have this weird like relationship to what's possible, where they're certain of the ability to predict the future in terms of what can't happen, but they don't bring that kind of uh, ability to know the future. Future to inspire the possibility of what should or could happen, and it's just this very weird thing. Like, and it, and it cuts off the ability of us to organize and fight against those you know potential dangers. At the same time, as it kind of like cuts off and makes impotent the the desire or will to act for changes that we need. So it's a very weird thing. This kind of centrist you know relationship to, to, to knowing the future. Um, yeah. Certain things are def- definitely not going to happen, and other things definitely can't happen. Um, and, and, and it leaves us uh relying on the elites, I suppose is the result right
2: yeah, yeah I hear you I mean I, I, I think I, I think there are good reasons to to not be too pessimistic about the possibility that Trump will actually prevail here but at the same time, I, I think you're right I mean I think we've sort of lost the very healthy sense that we had in November of 2016 that the the window of political possibility that we thought was was narrow was actually and uh, had been exploded by the event of Trump's election. If, if, if somebody like Trump can get into office, then what what isn't possible, mm. right? For, right, for, for, right? For better or for worse, right? That was something that we, I think people carried with them in the immediate aftermath of the election. I think we've acclimated ourselves to him um, and have come to see him, as, see him as normal. And so so that yeah. sensibility is sort of atrophied. But I think it's still fundamentally true. Um yeah, this is I think that there are antecedents you can point to for sure that that led to Trump and that brought us here. But it is a really weird and, and strange and remarkable thing that's happening and that should, should
0: yeah.
2: basically have, yeah. have destroyed our, our sense of confidence and certainty. I think that the result last week should have destroyed our sense of confidence and certainty about right. certain right. things and how electoral politics were, were supposed to work. Um, so, you know, on the specific question of Trump's authoritarianism and what what's actually going to happen um I'm encouraged by Trump's laziness. I'm encouraged by his incompetence and the incompetence yep. of his team. Right. The fact that they're rooting around for right. James Baker, uh, <laughs> you know, like a, <laughs> yeah, like a week yeah. into this thing or whatever. is something you should have probably thought of before you, you got started here. Um, at the same time, though, like, I, I, I don't think we should be waiting to see whether this turns into authoritarianism. This is like an authoritarian moments right now. That doesn't mean that people are being rounded up and carted away and all that dramatic stuff, but you do have a president just as an individual who is blocking a presidential transition, who is put a, is sent a command down that the next administration is not to be provided with certain information, it's not being allowed into certain buildings, it's not, it's not to be um, permitted to engage in the formal process of, of transitioning power. That's an authoritarian thing that he is doing. You know, it's not yes. people being put up you against know, the wall he, and shot. But that's, that's, that's right. authoritarianism to me.
0: There's this weird move. So, like, we love Corey Robin. We've had him on the pod to talk about his great book on Clarence Thomas. We, you know, he's, he's a, a, a tremendous political theorist. And there's something absolutely right about what he's saying, but here's here's the issue I have and here's maybe the problem in the debate from my perspective, which is like I think his point is that so many things that people attribute to Trump as being exceptional are 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 simply things that the party has done through the institutions and through the normal mechanisms of our government over time, right? Like so so like Trump seems outrageous because he is outrageous, but the harm he's doing has been done through the normal accepted ways, right? And, and, and and so, like the courts, as much as we want, you know, we fear norm erosion. So the courts are our savior. Cory Robbins is absolutely right to say, actually, the courts have been inflicting harm on people, right? And and actually, all these things, like Trump, is using lawsuits right now. Like that's that's the mechanism through which he's trying to do the things he's trying to do. And and so, like, I agree that the 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 reminder of the GOP generally and these institutional designs are themselves, uh, you know, sites of harm. That's Totally true. At the same time, they're also sites of struggle. And it's not good to just let the courts not care about pretending their objective anymore and just like forego the legal fiction that they're trying to actually adjudicate based on law rather than partisanship. Like that norm erosion is bad, right? Like yeah. so 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 for me, it's 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 both and it's true that all this harm has been done through these sites of struggle, through like the the constitutional designs and through the, you know, but but that doesn't mean we don't like try to contest the fact that Trump is using the courts to do his tyrannical will, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. I think that's absolutely right. Um and you know, I I come down I don't know where I come down. I think that the fascism question is sort of like a separate question you have to disentangle from the authoritarian question a little bit. Sure. Um yeah. But I but I'm yeah. I I don't know. I see this debate happening um and I, I think I come down where you do. It has to be at both ends. You recognize that what's happening now is a product of institutions being formally used in certain ways. And at the same time, there are actors within those institutions who are actually doing the work of making it work for them. Um, yeah. You know, so I, I think the main thing I think about, though, is that it's at a certain point, uh, knock on wood, Trump is going to be gone, right, come January. Right. right. Um, I wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago, and it feels like a million years ago, but I guess it was only maybe a month ago.
0: <laughs> Ta- uh, time a- during pandemic is a yeah. very weird so, thing, so right? remember <laughs> the Amy
2: Coney Barrett uh, confirmation hearings? Oh, I
0: remember her. Uh, yes, indeed. That was like a thousand years Barrett. ago. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So
2: back then when we thought we were going to uh, pack the Supreme Court and all of this, um, I wrote a piece about the Constitution, um, and I made a case for you know, not only packing the cord, but someday, some some sunny day, a generation or two from now, actually getting rid of the thing right, and, and, and writing a new constitution or coming to some other arrangement. Um, but to me, the, the, the sclerosis of those institutions and, and the difficulty of changing them, that to me is the authoritarian, and if you want to call it, threat. Like it doesn't, it's not contained within a particular person. It's contained within... These structures that that are are bringing us to a place where we have minority rule in this country, functionally. I mean, you can argue we're already there, honestly, uh, on a number of fronts. But but I, I think it's important to, as you said, do this sort of both end where we we look at somebody like Trump or people who might come after him, like Josh Hawley, Tucker Carlson, whoever it's going to be, and say, well, this person protect, presents in his person a, a set of threats. Um, that are emanating from what they're going to do as a particular agent. All that's important, but I think it's it's, it's also very, very important to understand that the constitution itself, the structures that it's created, no matter who comes in to office, no matter who is booted out of office, that is the thing that's hanging over our heads. Those are the shackles at our feet, right, that are preventing us from having a a true democracy in this country and and making life better for ordinary people. Um, The constitution is the dictator to me. And and I don't know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know what it's going to take to dislodge it. I think it's a generation or two long struggle. People after I wrote that piece said, "Well, you obviously uh, can't do this tomorrow. What, what what Where are your divisions? How are you going to <laughs> how are you going to get it done uh, in, in you know in near political <laughs> terms?" But I, I I do think that over time we have to build a movement on the left that that understands that consciously as a goal. That understands institutions of the American governments themselves as they stand today as being an impediment to improving people's lives in in a meaningful way. Um, And this is increasingly something that it's not even that radical to say. I mean, John Dingell was the longest serving congressman, I think, in American history. um, One of his last public acts before he died was running a piece in the Atlantic saying the Senate should be abolished. Uh, People already take it for granted that the electoral college should be abolished. Once you've once, once you've gotten yes. to this court, the electoral college and senate should be gone. Then what you know, you might as well just <laughs> just start yeah, to scratch right. there because you, then you're Scrap talking it, about yeah. a, uh, a fundamental change of the nature of the system. So I don't know. This, this is this, this is again one of the things that keeps me up at night. Just an understanding of how deeply screwed the institutions are, and, and, and understanding mm, yeah. them as in a way a kind of authoritarian or or dictatorial (laughs) presence, um, in our political lives.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, for, for me, maybe, maybe returning briefly to, you know, what you were saying before about mass protests, um, you know, the, the, the operative question here is, is, is whether you can sort of rally a functional, you know, uh, an activated base and a functional majority of the population around, not the Constitution, but the the principles of the Declaration of Independence and like the sort of like the preamble of the Constitution, rather than like the specific structures in the Constitution, you know, which I think stand up like like pretty well for being two hundred and fifty years older, however however long it is, um, because I mean you you look at history and there are so many examples of 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 things you know constitutional orders just falling apart overnight uh you know france has done this like a half a dozen times um i mean shit the way as you as you point out actually in your article if i'm not mistaken the writing of the constitution itself was an act just like this the people who wrote the constitution had no legitimacy whatsoever under the previous legal regime mm-hmm to actually do the thing that they did. They were just like the articles of confederation, they don't fucking work. Let's start from scratch and we'll just brass through and, and we're, and we'll just, you know, rely on our sort of authority, our legitimacy, whatever we can create, sort of bully the, the, the laggards into joining up and, and, you know, create a a new country and it worked, you know, it worked because they had, you know, Mm -hmm. judged the, 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 the political moment accurately. There were enough people who agreed with them and they could exercise enough, you know, legitimate force to make that happen. And so, you know, I, I, uh, I mean, the American constitution has, I'm, uh, I don't know. People tell me that the Norwegian constitution has a extremely high legitimacy because it's so old. I think it's from 1814. But I think that uh, the American one uh, is is probably the most kind of like foundational to the sort of national legend. But it also seems to me that it's never functioned this badly ever uh in in terms of the nat well, except for the civil war <laughs> you know a admittedly large <laughs> exception but but like there for anyone who's alive today the functioning the sort of national institution is sort of like provide to make sure that like to uh, tomorrow like there's sort of broad stability the government will be for the most part sort of there for you that's just not really an expectation that people have and i think you know uh, there, there's a possibility there for for you know just exactly the kind of of um, you know really radical mobilization that uh, you know you've been talking about and. So to turn to an actual question here, rather than just just ranting, <laughs> um, the go, going to the to 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 like actual structures of governance, and in particular the the Democratic Party. Um, tell me what you think of this theory, because I've been reading just endless postmortems about you know what what went right, what went wrong in the in the, the election this year. And you know the the centrists are attacking AOC. AOC is sort of sort of you know clapping back, as it were. But it, there's also you know a sort of undernoticed number of you know what you might call moderates, in particular Beto O'Rourke and Doug Jones, um, who are dis, who are saying more or less the same things as AOC. Uh, they're saying that the Democratic Party is in an absolute, like, it largely doesn't exist in big chunks of the country, uh, in terms of an actual political party, which is, you know, kind of a different thing in most other countries than it is in the US. And um, so, like, there, the argument of you know, AOC, Jones and, uh, Beto is that you need to create a political organization. You need to create a, a democratic party that is an actual institution at the local level in all these cases. And if, and if that institution includes, uh, a, a kind of, you know, just a sort of like baseline commitment to a democratic Republican form of government to say that the people should rule, you know, that like the, win- the, the, the president should be the person who gets the most votes, et cetera, et cetera, then that could be a potentially pretty radical kind of thing. And, and even, you know, and so that's kind of bracketing the question of like left versus center, you know, because like, Doug Jones was he was not a leftist for sure, but he seems to be like a person who believes in democracy in a way that like Nancy Pelosi, frankly, kind of doesn't. And so I don't know, do you think there's any kind of potential for building a sort of like popular front, for lack of a better word, for to like, you know, protect, preserve, restore kind of American democracy?
2: Um, I think I think that's Kind of the answer. I think that's the skeleton key for the progressive movement in this country. I've, I've you know, not that I've given this years of thought and scholarly study or anything, <laughs> um, but the way I see it is this: there's there's all this talk now about, um, well, how popular is socialism? Really, is it too risky for us to, to run on and, and so on? All of the data that we have on issues like workplace democracy. Giving workers an ownership stake in the businesses that they are actually shaping and running and making work, right? Giving them a vote uh, and governing those businesses. Um, basic labor stuff, making sure your boss can't arbitrarily fire you. There's all these kinds of things. All of those pop policies are extremely popular. And all of those policies cut to the heart of what people mean when they say democratic socialism. It's not necessarily... Yep or even fundamentally spending money on social programs is as important as that is. It's it's fundamentally changing the structure of labor in this country and the structure of the economy overall, right? Um, If that is true, if those policies are popular, right, then you can talk about a, a, a unifying message that everybody should be able to glom onto. It is democracy, it is democracy at the ballot box, making sure that your vote can't be thrown out, making sure that your vote means something in the presidential election, making sure we are expanding the franchise. And it is democracy at work, making sure that you have rights, you have a say, you have a share. Um, and everybody, you know, is equal on that level. Right? That this 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 to me is is the answer, right? We have we talk all the time about what can we sort of tell ourselves as a story about this country and and um, what parts of our history should we recover and, and, and um, really be proud of, whatever. Um, the, the pattern has always been, well, we're going to hearken back to the documents or we're going to hearken back to the founders, the particular people who, who set this thing up. What we need to, to, to really claim is, again, democracy, the idea that, that a mission that we can take on as a country is becoming the, the center, the cradle for democracy on Earth, where we can we can make democracy work as an experiment here, um, if if we put our minds to it, if we all work together, and 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 you know, that that is a project that can be a great hope for the world, right? Um, that to me is is kind of the unifying message, unifying thing. Nobody nobody has negative associations. Maybe maybe conservative Republicans do. The vast majority of the country is not a negative association yeah. when you talk about yeah. democracy. If those are the terms where talking in, whether it comes to the economy, whether it comes to politics, I think that's something that people can glom onto, whether you are a white working class person on the rest belt, you're a college educated person, you're a young person, African American, Latino, whatever it is, people like the concept of democracy. People want to feel empowered and that should be the message. Um, and so, you know, th- this organizational question of, of what kind of infrastructure Democrats should be building around the country, I think it should be oriented towards getting people to think about progressive policy and progressive issues on that level, right? I think one of the most important facts that anybody thinking about American politics can carry with them at all times is the fact that Barry Goldwater lost in 1964, right? The conservative movement was washed, washed in 1964. Yeah, that's right. That's they were crushed. Right. And it would have been very yes. easy for them to say, well, look, this doesn't work. This, this is not an ideology that <laughs> it appeals to the majority yes. of the American electorate. We're just going to pack our bag and go home or we're going to go to the center. That's not what they did. They created institutions, they created think tanks, they created media organizations, they got a lot of money, and they set about for the next 16 years trying to create a base for the ideology. They were helped out a little by historical events and, and the backlash to the late 1960s, but they put in work and resources to building conservative ideology to the point where it could stand on its own and elect Ronald Reagan president and evolve into the force that we have uh, plaguing us today, right? That is the way people should think about movement building to me. Um, It's an understanding that you need to build ideological infrastructure that reaches people, gets them to think about politics in a different way. That's not work you can do over the course of a campaign. You're not going to convert people, you know, uh, doing door-to-door canvassing over a couple of weeks late in the fall, right? This this is an on-the-ground years, probably, uh, long effort to to really reach people in communities where progressivism is difficult right now and getting them to change. This is what AOC said. This is what Jug Jones, I think, and Bayer Oak were also talking about. And I think that there's already an understanding, whether you're talking about, on one end, uh, the DSA, on the other end, uh, a more mainstream organization like Indivisible, right? There's an understanding that progressives need to be everywhere, that they can't take any part of the country for granted. And if you work hard enough and, and think long and hard about how you're trying to reach people, you can create and build a constituency for progressive politics anywhere in this country. It takes time and it takes effort. As I said at the very beginning, we don't have a lot of time. But look, this, this is something right, we should throw ourselves right. into. And I, and I think the democracy yeah. should be the unifying theme, the unifying message, the way that we think and, and communicate uh, what we're all about to people. Because that's, that's something that people can glom onto. It doesn't take reading a lot <laughs> of, of dense theory. Yeah, it yeah, yeah. It's not it's right. not a scary idea. Um, I think it, it, it's something that seems commonsensical to people as, as a positive value.
0: No, that's that's beautiful. That that was really beautiful. It reminds me of a few disparate things. One is uh, the film White Men Can't Jump and Woody Harrelson's girlfriend, who said, "Sometimes when you win, you really lose, and sometimes when you r- lose, you really win." Um, but but also but also the fact that like look. You know, progress is is not uh, temporally bounded, right? Like the fact that Occupy at the time people thought it failed, except that's where we got the the one percent ninety nine percent slogan, right? Uh, and Bernie lost, but did he really lose? Because he gave rise to to the, this increase in, in mobilization and, and DSA membership, and uh, and and so there's this ongoing struggle where you say there is urgency. But but there are short and long term successes that can be had, and and overall democracy, the way that you you discuss it, it it's a way of life, a way of being, a way of uh, espousing non domination and a kind of freedom that I think Corey Robin is right to say we need to reappropriate from the right, right? A kind of freedom that is the synonymous in a way with dem- democracy, whether in the workplace or, or otherwise, that that people can get on board with all the time, no matter. I mean, if you talk to union organizers, they could be the the most fervent Trump supporter. And they're all about understanding how they shouldn't be dominated at work, right? Like non-domination freedom is something that really can, can activate people. And and this is a process where we've seen successes and and successes that looked like failures gave rise to, to later successes. So we should embrace this way of life, this way of organizing around these fundamental, um, Principles of of that we should be able to to live freely without domination, and that is both uh, a goal, but also it's something procedural. So we can address the procedural elements as much as we can address the kind of like political policies that get us there. And and I think that is a way forward. That 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 is both um, you know short, medium, and long term as a project, right? Yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Ryan, do you want to say something? Well, we're-
1: Oh to, actually just 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 building on your point Alexi to 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 ask another question um, again about stupid online bullshit but uh, <laughs> you know uh,
0: cuz that's what really folks that's what really matters yeah, We need yeah, a respite yeah, yeah. from yes. the serious Twitter, Twitter we, beats. we need to we need-
1: no but so i i i've had a thought for a while now that that what what the left you know should be doing is trying to sort of basically appropriate, do cultural appropriation on American history. Basically just, just <laughs> trying to say, this is
0: what Harvey Kay wants. This is, this is what our friend Harvey Kay. The K. Wants American do, right? flag is
1: ours now, you know, that Trump doesn't want it. He's got the fascist blue lives matter flag up. Um, that was at all of his rallies, you know, and, and, and it gradually, you know, as people uh, did in like photographic montages, it gradually displaced the American flag. It's like, they don't want it anymore. Okay. It's ours now just as, as a kind of symbol, you know, and to say like, I had a, I had a tweet praising George Washington for stepping down. And and there was a response from you know a handful of leftists who were like actually did you know George Washington owned slaves like yes I knew that you know but like that doesn't doesn't change the fact that like you know in contrast to Trump he could have been king without lifting a finger and chose to step down boy isn't that you know that that's a sort of a sort of like a norm of history a symbol you know a, a way of saying like. Uh, here's a, here's a sort of like historical hero we can take out of context and maybe sort of like trump up a little bit in service of our political goals. And similarly with Abraham Lincoln, kind of racist guy, but like did a lot of incredibly anti-racist stuff in the context of, and and like was less racist than, than his uh, contemporaries. Certainly FDR made a lot of terrible compromises with Southern Democrats, but nevertheless, uh, you know, um, reduced black-white inequality relative to where it had been before and to, to say like okay we're constructing a narrative of American history to be you know and I mean sort of trying to cohere a new vision of America that's partly cynical but also partly true you know because I feel like the kind of lefty you know Eeyore type of uh you know, that like it's always bad and, and all American history is just an unbroken tide of imperialism and, and just like horrible atrocities. It's just not really quite accurate, you know? Um, and, and I feel like what you're saying, Osita, is it can sort of be tied into that kind of, uh, uh, I mean, I guess propaganda work for lack of a better word to say that like this actually is our country, that, that like we as a democracy are, we, we are, uh, you know, voting together, we are working together to sort of keep pushing our uh, historical project forward through time, and we are working against people who are anti-American, who don't want, you know, who who, who want a, a fundamentally kind of traitorous vision. You know, the John C. Calhoun, uh, the 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 Jefferson Davis view of how America should should be, and. I mean, I don't know. Maybe the American flag is irredeemable. But any any thoughts on that before we let you go?
2: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I I, I think it. I want to first give the, the left critique its full due. Um, sure. If if you want to build an international working class movement, if you think that is fundamentally necessary given that capital is itself transnational and requires a collective effort by the working peoples of the world to, to defeat it, um, you have to think very carefully about building a political approach that is defined too much by the context of one country and conditions within one country, particularly a country that has spent much of its history subjugating and, yep. and murdering people abroad. I think that is, that is a very, I mean, I take very seriously. I think it's, it's worth taking very seriously the idea that some of the iconography uh, of this country can be alienating, can be something that distances uh, people who might be allies in the struggle from, from the fight. I think all of that is, is true. Um, at the same time, we are inescapably. Americans, right? We're inescapably in this country, right? If we are going to prevail, we have to prevail first here. This is the most powerful country in the world, right? So there, on some level, we have to adopt a political approach that speaks to a critical mass of people here and activates them before you move on to the next thing. From my perspective, I don't come at this, again, as, as an expert on, on left theory. This is, this is <laughs> all stuff that I'm uh, in many ways delving into uh, now for the first time since since college. So I'm, I'm going to try to speak very cautiously and without any authority whatsoever. But, you know, as long as we're here in the United States, right, we should sort of about trying to figure out how we can actually succeed within this population and bring people over to our side. Uh, and if there are things that we can do that make people more comfortable with the messages that we're advancing, that don't require us to compromise on substance, that don't require us to... Uh, you know, downplay or dismiss uh, the horrors of American foreign policy, or the horrors of American history. If if we can pull that off, um, you know, I think I think we should we should try to right. Maybe that's that's using the flag more. Maybe that's playing Sousa. Maybe it's you know talking about people like Charles Sumner and not just. Uh, re- regurgitating stuff about the same list of founders that we've, we've heard you know, since grade school, but elevating other people who have been really great in American history, really progressive in American history who haven't gotten their due and and thinking about them and, and what we can take from them. You know, all of those things to me are, are worth trying. Um, and it seems to me that a lot of it is, is actually like low hanging fruit. Like there, there are very easy ways we could make people comfortable with uh, weird <laughs> Weird progressives that they, they they you know don't really know how to trust or aren't familiar with if, if we seem to be coming right. to them on the same kind of socio-cultural plane on some level if that makes sense um, so I think it's a complicated question but I, I somebody who you know is is very moved by um, you know embarrassingly that this sort of grade school conception of America in this country is special and it's still you know Tugs at my heartstrings is somebody whose parents came to this country, um, believing it was going to be a special place. And you know all all of that means yeah. stuff yeah. to me. And if there's a way that we can capture that and and make it real and make it true, ground it in material advantages for ordinary people and and material progress, not just this idea that America, uh, is already great, and and you know this pure purely spiritual thing we're connecting to. If we can, we can adopt an idea of the American project that is rooted in making things better for ordinary working people. I think we ought to do that as as any way we can. You know, um, without giving short shrift to, um, you know, the dark parts of our history and the dark parts of our policies and and, and things that we've done. I think that, I don't know. I, I think it's complicated, but but we are inescapably American, and that's just the context we have to work within. For starters, at least.
0: Beautiful, beauti- beautifully said. I think that's inspiring. I think as the left, um, it's a good challenge to have, right? To to own the fact that we're situated here. We have this history, and it's it's ours to craft a narrative that can empower us to be responsible to each other and to the world, uh, given the place that we're in and and the power that this country has um, to 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 make peace and do justice here and abroad. And I, I think that's a beautiful, nuanced way to. to uh, to speak to it, um, which which we expect of you, right? As as, as humble as you've been, right? The, the the trenchant insights that you you provide in your writing, I, I expect nothing less. And so, thank you, thank you for navigating these these tricky tricky questions, um, you know. So um, so um, just deftly, and uh, and thank you for joining us. Really appreciate your your input and your insights.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. This is really great.
0: Yeah.
1: And the, and speaking of sort of founding fathers era type of people let me let me close with a quote from good old John Quincy Adams you know you're talking about anti-imperialism uh you know he's a guy who was a a, a pretty you know not a not a great not a great successful president but after <laughs> after his time in office went back to the House of Representatives and fought slavery literally until his dying breath he croaked uh, in the Capitol building itself if I'm not mistaken and he famous, famously said America goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy she is a well-wisher to the freedom and independence of all and so you know there's, there's a lot of things you can search for in the in the old National Archive but yeah thanks for coming on Osita we're much obliged and thanks for listening, everybody. Awesome. Yeah,
0: you're always you're Thank always you so welcome. Much. Come. Cheers, my friend.
1: Bye bye, everybody.